In this episode of STEMiverse, Markus and I talk with Pasi Suhonen. Pasi is a maker from Finland. By day, he's a customer-facing engineer at Rode & Schwarz Finland, a German telecommunications company based in Munich, Germany. By any other time, Pasi is a tinkerer and lifelong learner. In this conversation, Pasi tells us about his path in education and especially his experience as an apprentice, what schooling is like in Finland and his hobbies, in particular microcontrollers, programming and radio astronomy. I think you'll find Pasi's learning experiences very interesting. This is STEMiverse, episode 3. Welcome to STEMiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I am Peter Dalmaris, and with my co-host, Marcus Sharpie, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics and art better. Hi, Pasi. Welcome and thank you for being our guest at STEMiverse. So, um, uh, in the next hour or so, me and uh, Marcus uh, are going to shoot a lot of questions uh, towards you uh, in an effort to understand how you learn, your relation to STEM, uh, science, technology, uh, engineering and mathematics. And if there is a bit of art there, I'd like to talk about that as well. So, um, would you like to take a couple of minutes and introduce yourself to our audience and tell us a bit about you, um, if you like, about um, the place that you're working, just to get to know a little bit about you. Well, thank you, Peter, and thank you for inviting me for this uh, podcast. My name is Pasi Suhonen, and I live in Finland. I'm, being, uh, I'm working as a technical sales engineer for an international company called Rodian Swartz. Rodiat Swartz is an international electronics group which is specialized in the fields of electronic test and measurement equipment, broadcast and media, cybersecurity, radio monitoring, radio location and radio communications and services. Uh, company provides products for wireless communications and broadcast and media, cybersecurity and electronics industry as well as aerospace and defense and homeland security and critical infrastructures. The group has been developing and producing and marketing electronic products for capital goods sector since 1933. In addition to Munich headquarters, there are regional headquarters in US Columbia and in Asia Singapore. Almost 6,000 of the company employees work in Germany, including around 2,000 employees at the Munich headquarters. And uh, worldwide, the company has a total of 10,000 employees over 70 countries. It's family-owned and self-financing. Exports account, account for 90% of revenues. The company invests around 16% of its annual net revenue into research and development. That's very impressive. <laughs> I suppose the culture in the company is full-on engineering, isn't it? Like the engineering headcount must be very high. That is basically true. It's, it's basically an engineering, engineering company and um, um, 
almost every sales cars are holding an engineering degree from university. So it's we can say it's pretty much engineering company and and uh, really really old uh, generation. Back in 1933, they, these guys were developing and started a company from the garage, and now it's over 10,000 people worldwide, and we have a subsidiaries over 70 countries. It's, so it's it's been really great, great to work with this company. Uh, is the family um, continuing, like the family that started the company, continuing to own it now through its descendants? Yes. They are they are involved uh, in in the board of uh, executives and they are still around. Um, these um, families, Rody and Schwartz, they were doctors back in 1930s, and I think their grandchildren are now <laughs> running the uh, uh, also the company. So it's it's really old traditions. So can I assume as well that the board of executives are mostly engineers instead of especially lawyers and accountants like <laughs> in other organizations? Yeah, I would say most of these guys are engineers, yes. Yes, that's true. This is a terrible question, but I want to know how the company survived the war <laughs> and then ramped up after the war. Yeah. Because that one must be an interesting story. Yes. I don't I don't really know about uh, much of that period of time. Uh, all I know that we, 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 produ- uh, we were producing some products for electronics back then, but that's something I really do not know. I have seen... One schematic from the signal generator, which was produced in 1942, <laughs> and wow, yeah, that, yeah, that 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 was uh, running with tubes, and I think they can still manufacture it if they can find proper parts, and uh, the schematic still exists. <laughs> yeah, that's for the days. Yes. Amazing to have such a, um, you know, an engineering company with such history. Yes, yes. Yeah. not too many like that in the world. Yeah. Is it common in Germany for family-owned companies to grow that large without you know, privatizing and going into the stock market and all that? Yes, I think so. That's quite common because most of our company, which we are working also as partners, um, many of these are family-owned companies. I don't think the Germans would like to keep it that way because uh, there are certain risks to go into the stock and grow grow out, out of your League, so they, it's it's really really rough out there, and I think they can handle the company more more easily when it's when everything is in your own hands. I would say like like that. It's quite common if you think about like a Swiss Army knife or hmm. a lot of the pharmaceutical companies. Or like well, when I say Swiss Army knife, I mean Victorinox and hmm. companies like that. They're all privately owned and uh, within the same uh, family for generations, which is you know. Again, quite different to the yeah. Western side of things. We're not used to that. Uh, in Australia, obviously, yeah. like when a company reaches 5,000 employees, it's a certain time to go to the stock market now yeah, and they sell. <laughs> yes, that's, not really, yeah. that is really common. And uh, I think it creates a lot of pressure from the stockholders uh, towards the company to make a good profit. And otherwise, they are really, really hasty to do certain things uh, if, if everything is not, not going well. So I, I prefer family-owned. That's that's my... Definitely, the culture is so much different. Um, let's let's switch uh, from the company. And I'd like to, um, to interrogate you <laughs> and ask you about your training because uh, uh, from a few uh, moments that we spent talking earlier before we started recording, you mentioned that your training goes back to, um, I think, eight, 1989 when you graduated. Can you tell us about what training in engineering or in, in your discipline was like back in 
back then that predates me into Marcus as well? So my pay. My training is basically an ongoing process. Um, it started when I graduated from the vocational school back in 1989 with a degree of uh, radio and TV mechanic. And uh, back then we were working with analog equipment and everything was analog. Uh, TV was analog receiver and there were analog transmitters. So that was a complete different domain to work with and, and repair these TV sets because we had to do repairs on, on the component level. Uh, between 1989 and present day, I have studied and graduated from four different study programs. And uh, during the 10 years of time while I was uh, practicing my profession as a radio and TV mechanic, I graduated from three different apprenticeship contract study programs, uh, which covered areas of uh, telecommunication technology, computer technology, and sub supervisor for electrical safety. How did they work? How, what was that process? Uh, the process is that uh, you have to find uh, a company who is willing to take this uh, apprentice to work. And, and basically you are going, um, it's, it's normal work, but there is also school involved and, and you get official certificate for graduating this uh, program. And you will go to work and learn practical things directly to the company which you are working for. And then you have a theoretical studies which you, over, you have to attend in, in a school in order to get the certificate. And uh, I think it's it's really cool aspect to think if, if you want to work and study at the same time because you, you get the specific training for a specific job and you get certified at the same time. And uh, for me, that was really cool experience. Uh, I did it four times with these um, companies. And these... Uh, Apprenticeship contracts, they normally last one to three years, depending on the program. Mm -hmm. Is it typical for, I suppose, vocational style education to, have, to become an apprentice and have a mentor to guide you through, as opposed to a university, where things happen more in the classroom, I suppose, kind of disconnected from the rest of the world? Yes. Yes. Uh, one of the challenges with this apprenticeship uh, programs is that um, you have to find a good uh, person from the company who is willing to guide you through uh, with the work processes and basically with these uh, programs you get education in schools so the most challenge is within the working place to find a person who is willing to teach you from the scratch to an expert level so that's that's one of the challenges but these things are usually working well if the company is willing to do this kind of uh, program. And how did you go about finding somebody uh, to mentor and teach you within these companies? Basically, you have to make a contract with the company and there you, you, you have uh, certain statements that somebody is uh, really doing it. It's, it's written on the paper and it's also mandatory for the school. They want to know that this company is really willing to do these kind of things and they are committed to teach the student in a proper way. And if it is not done, the contract is, uh, it's not, it's not valid anymore. Okay. And this is mostly driven from the educational institution? Yes. It's a formal, than... yeah, it's, it's a formal educational program, but it's a different way to learn, learn and work at the same time. Okay, cool. I'd like to um, 
explore your apprenticeship uh, a bit more, uh, if that's okay. Um, could because I haven't had an experience like that. So I went through university and I had to sit in a classroom, uh, listen, read, and go to an exam. And uh, I never really, <laughs> until I, I graduated, I didn't really know what engineering is like in the field, mm -hmm. which is, I suppose, different to your experience. Could you describe like a typical day with your mentor? What was that like? Yes. Um, for Back then I was working with this radio and TV set repair shop. And uh, my typical day was that um, we received uh, broken devices into... into into the shop and uh, we repaired them. I was specialized on the TVs and basically this mentor was uh, training me to how to f uh, do the proper fault finding from the TV sets and uh, that was customer service basically, which we were doing. So like I mentioned back th those days, we were uh, working with analog equipment and we were repairing uh, TV sets in a component level. So it takes a long time to get familiar with the logic of uh, fault finding and when to start and how, how, how can you do it effectively and this is where the mentor is really valuable because he knows straight away what state is faulty and how should you pinpoint your um, faulty parts and things like these so that was basically hands-on training all the time when I was working and these apprenticeship contracts they didn't uh, certify me as an engineer. For that, I went to university in a separate place back in 2007. But, uh, but this, this radio and TV mechanic thing, that, that, was, that was really cool to, to have this apprenticeship program, especially when you are young and uh, not experienced for, for fault finding. Yeah, absolutely. Because back then, TVs were expensive equipment as well. Every house would have one. And, uh, not every house even. Uh, yeah, some houses <laughs> would have one. So uh, the, you, you couldn't just buy another one if yours broke down. Because now it's very uncommon actually to repair equipment, isn't it? If it's within the warranty, the manufacturer will just replace it with a new set and just recycle the parts. It's not worth repairing anything. So there's very few places these days where there's actually the, the ability or the know-how to repair a, a TV or a fridge or an equipment like that. So I suppose it's an art that is slowly, actually not slowly, fast <laughs> disappearing. Yes, yes, that was totally different domain. And nowadays, uh, these repair shops, they are changing modules, uh, partially because they are all... Um, the components are now different. They are uh, surface mounted today, so you have to have uh, expensive equipment to dismount them. It can be done if you have a uh, proper mass of devices to repair and uh, you can get good income from there. But back, back in 1990s, uh, I was repairing uh, TV sets, video recorders, DVD players, radio receivers, things like this and TV set typically costs around um, I would say 1,000 euros that that time currency so they are they were very very expensive and the people used to repair them and that was good because um, we didn't produce so much uh, electronic waste and every everything was repaired and I, I liked 
I like that concept a lot. Do you still repair your own equipment? Not so much. Only some basic power supply repairs on if you have a dried out capacitors in, in the primary or secondary side of power supply and things like these. But uh, it's not really worth of uh, repair these uh, expensive modules because you have to have a special equipment to this amount of these components and uh, processors. And uh, it requires a really, really high sophisticated um, test and measurement equipment. If you think about the digital TV nowadays, you have to have a high-speed oscilloscopes, which is going um, up to one gigahertz or something like this, and this easily costs around 50,000 euros or something like that. So it's it's really, it's really not so easy to repair these modules, but basic things you can do as mechanical repairs and um, power supplies, they haven't changed since 90s, so there's still the same switching power supplies used and the base, basic laws are applied there, so they, they can be repaired. Yeah, so as long as you're a bit choosy, and especially when you work with power supplies, <laughs> you know what you're doing, and you save, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got the same experience, um, like when one of my monitors, for example, breaks down, uh, I have some suspicion of what might be wrong, but I know that there's no way for me to go to my local electronics store and find the part that I think is broken. It's just it doesn't exist unless you are Dell and you can find it from your own supplier in China somewhere. So just from that point of view, it's just even if you do that diagnosis, you can't do anything about it. Uh, Pasi, could, could we um, go back in time a little bit in your childhood? I'd like to take a few minutes to explore <laughs> what you were like as a child. Uh, were you, for example, curious about what's inside devices so that you wanted to open things up and explore inside to break electronics. Um, I just wanted to know how eventually you, you, know, you became the person that you are now, uh, if you dig into your childhood and see some, uh, some of these early signs. And whilst you're there, what was school like in Finland? Oh yes, that, that as well for us is quite a, a completely different experience, obviously. Yes. Um that's really, really nice to remember the childhood. Um, I remember two major things which has, uh, which had uh, influence in my interest of science and technology. And uh, number one was uh, when I was a young boy, I was very interested from from the games. And uh, uh, back in those days, first commercial game consoles came out to consumer markets and. Um, my parent, uh, parents bought me this Atari 2600 console and Ni- Nintendo Donkey Kong handheld console back in 1983. And uh, besides of gaming, I was wondering how these uh, magical boxes were built and how does it function. So obviously I break up the Donkey Kong, never got it back to work again, but I saw what's inside it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, that, that was... One, one driver to my interest of, uh, of, of this uh, technology. And uh, the second one I remember quite well is when I started my vocational school, I was uh, 15 years old. We had, uh, during the first day, we had the introduction in this school and I saw these uh, third grade uh, students, they were repairing TV receivers, real repairs to the receivers. And immediately on that day, I knew that I, I, I want to learn more from the electronics and that, that was my sort of a driver for, for the electronics and 
how things are built. And that happened in the school. So, yes, the, the, your school had a, a lab, I suppose, or a workshop where kids or the students could go and play around with TVs and radios. Yes, that was the school was uh, constructed in a way that uh, normal people can can do. Uh, they, they can bring um, customer devices into the school, and school were repairing these devices with a really really cheap price. So that was a two-way learning experience. One was uh, um, customer service, how to handle the customers, how to, how to book up uh, the um, working and all these. And other one was obviously this technical side, uh, how to how to file, find faults inside uh, TV receivers, radio receivers, video recorders, and things like this. And uh, I really liked that concept. This was vocational school. Yes. Right. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't like a mainstream school, was it? Like a, a, a public, I suppose. Well, what age group? I should. We should oh yeah. This is like, How old were the kids? Yeah. Yeah, that was a vocational school, and you 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 graduated elementary school, and then you can go to vocational school in Finland. So that was it. It started in the year in the age of fifteen, and you you have to apply to the school, and then, then you get uh, accepted or not. It depends from your. Um, Certificates and uh, how well you have done in in elementary school system. Mm-hmm. Was there some kind of f- feeding program in elementary school? Uh, so kids that wanted to go to such uh, a vocational school, having to go through certain classes, perhaps to exams, or could anybody apply with no particular preparation? Anybody could apply uh, with the particular without particular um, preparation. Um, I, I, if I remember right, they were looking um, how well you have done in mathematics and uh, physics and um, languages. Those were the basic requirements, and then you get certain points when you are applying. And it depends how 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 good is your exams uh, were in in uh, elementary school that uh, that had an influence to this um, selection process. Now, has the the vocational school is that still going strong, or has that sort of model gone to the wayside uh, as people get more interested into, I guess, going to university rather than a vocational school? The elementary, the, this vocational school is still strong, um, and you can in Finland this school system is that you have to go first to the elementary school, and then you have to go for high school or vocational school and after you finish high school or this vocational school you can apply to universities so that is the way way it is done and if you are certified from the vocational school you can apply to uni- university of applied sciences and uh, get an engineering degree after that so in total i would say this uh, process takes about 12 years from the young person. Hmm. Right, so it's a long time, isn't it? Yeah. Um, are you still involved in um, schooling or training in, in one way or another? I'm not sure if you have children that perhaps are going through the system now. Um, yes, I have been, um, I've been learning uh, with these open university courses, um, computer programming, um, and some other interesting stuff concerning the networking technologies, Cisco CCNA courses and things like this. 
So these are open basically for everybody and they are quite cheap. You have to pay around, um, I would say, 30 euros or something like this from the one course. And they are different. It, it's, it's really, it's really cheap um, and uh, there, there's a different kind of a pr processes going on with these open universities. You can apply to this um, sort of a career path education where you get uh, maybe one year training, for example, from the um, network technology and that's from the autumn time to springtime and it, it costs around 300 euros in total and you are you are um, you can go to the school and learn there or learn virtually via via internet so it's it's basically up to you how do you want to do it yeah well let's explore that for a few more minutes i wonder so you've gone through uh, you've gone through your apprenticeships then uh, i know that you've also done uh, you've attended uh, university on campus uh, i think you graduated in 2007 or 8 then you've also done online education. You're doing that, and it seems like you, you're doing it constantly. Um, how has your experience early on in in your education career uh, helped you to be able to learn, uh, you know, self-directed to self-direct your learning now later in your life? Do you think that your early uh, educational experiences have helped you to be able to be an independent and lifelong learner? Yes, I would say these um, apprenticeship programs was, was one major driver for me. Um, when I go to university, I started to, with, me, with my university studies in 2007 and I graduated uh, 2012 and I I, I did my studies in the university same time I was working full time. So my work ended uh, 4 p.m. I went to school from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. Sometimes six times a week, even in in Sundays. We had these labs and uh, all these exams, and uh, it took me uh, five years to learn it. And uh, it was a really really interesting process, but very hard, uh, especially if you have a family or or girlfriend or something like this. It's all the timetables is. Um, really hard to adjust together and it takes a lot of time to graduate but I would say these apprenticeship um, trainings they somehow mentally prepared me during these years uh, for this kind of learning and the uh, Finnish school system is really flexible you can you can go to full-time studies as a day student or you can you can study after work it's up to you it's, it's, there's re really lots of uh, different um, educational programs going on, on in our system at the moment. It's mostly public, isn't it? The universities and higher education. Yes. It's public, so that students don't actually have to pay the thousands of dollars of fees. Yes, for a Finnish person, this is quite cheap. I would say I paid for my engineering studies, maybe one thousand euros in total for five years. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, really good. graduates yeah. in Australia in engineering uh, can go up to hundred thousand dollars yes. in accumulated debt. It's it's really really, really really different system. But for the foreigners, we I think these universities are charging around uh, ten thousand in in one one year. So there is a difference, but still it's quite cheap to um, compared to 
some other countries like yours or the UK, yes, and US, and it's really, really expensive. So I, I think our system is really good in a way that uh, you don't have this economical pressure behind how how can your parents support your studies. It's all up to you what you want to do. And that's that's really fantastic in this system. Yeah, I'm fully in support. <laughs> it's the kind of system that uh, I like. Um, it's very reasonable as well, especially when you can take into account the, the value that, for example, an engineer, uh, a, a doctor, um, I guess a scientist can produce in the course of a life for the country. Uh, it, it, it's really a, a good investment. Um, anyway, that's a political question. Um, are you are you an, uh, a mentor, perhaps, for uh, people that want to become engineers in your spare time, maybe, or you know, your, your kids? Do you see yourself as a mentor to others? Not really, uh, but my son is six years old, so he's uh, starting to develop uh, an interest to different different things. One of these is uh, space and universe, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes. so that's that's something. Um, I think he got this uh, ignition from, from for the space uh, from the Star Wars, so he was really <laughs> really looking looking for that one, and uh, we just bought him his uh, first um, optical telescope for for, for watching the. Um, moon and the stars and uh, that's that's really 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 what i'm looking for but i, I really don't know how he, he will be what is his interest at the moment there are so many different things going on yeah kids these days have got so much opportunity don't they like i've got two kids marcus has uh, three <laughs> and uh they are exposed to so many things that and actually develop interests strong interests in in a lot of different and diverse things that is hard to know early on where they might actually settle mm. until much later in life. Uh, but as parents, I suppose we just need to give them as much opportunity to explore as we can possibly do so that can, um, they can just explore. I remember when I was a kid growing up, um, there wasn't much. <laughs> there, was, there wasn't much actually to... Um, to engage my imagination with so um, I, I pick a hobby like uh, I like to build um, uh, model planes there were nothing remote controlled back then so it was mm-hmm. all just plastic pieces that you stuck together and you paint it and, uh, yep. and then you hang it off your ceiling and uh, explore it for a few years and then when I got my first screwdriver I started opening things up <laughs> there wasn't too many things to open up but yeah I just compare our childhood to our children's childhood is just such a big contrast. Yes, it is. And also the um, way of learning has been changed. My, my son is now going for for this preschool and uh, they are learning uh, alphabets, uh, numbers and art and gymnastics and all these things. But they are not just doing it in the school in the classroom instead they they can go to field trip and learn in the nature these these same things. And I think that's quite quite interesting, interesting way to teach and learn different things. How is uh, um, again uh, your your son is six years old, so maybe haven't had enough time to 
have an opinion on this, but what is the situation with STEM education in Finland? Uh, is is there an emphasis in sciences, the mathematics, engineering, and, and even arts, uh, a particular emphasis in those fields? Yes, I think um, the technology is driving uh, the people, so we need basic skills uh, in, in, in elementary schools and um, basic skills for using computers, phones, tablets, they are important uh, so you can survive from the normal day activities. And I think our school system has really well adapted these devices in, into a classroom learning. So almost every school has these kind of equipment. So they are studying things, of course, in the paper, but also with the virtual reality sometimes and uh, with these computers. So young people can get experienced um, in, in a young age for these different technical devices. And um, one thing which is uh, which I read from the newspapers a um, while back um, is that our government has decided that computer program is, uh, programming is quite important skill. So they have plans to implement these programming studies into mandatory part in elementary school. Hmm. Mandatory. Well, mm-hmm. what's the thinking behind that? Is there something special about um, programming? Do they want? Does the government believe that there's going to be a lot of programming jobs in the future, or is there something about programming that you know helps people develop in in a certain way that is desirable? I think it's both. They, they see that there are really lots of jobs in the future for programming, but also the programming can teach you how to think. Uh, think things in a logical way so that's that's one one thing to teach logic and how things are running background and how, how you can design things in in some sequences and then execute the sequence and see the uh, final result uh, i think the, this logic is the major driver for this this kind of um, implementation yeah it's i think uh, the skills that you get by becoming a programmer It can be generalized in so many different ways. Like it's really about problem solving and then using the right tool to solve a problem that you have algorithmically, which means really you're teaching the computer. And because the computer is not a human, obviously, yet, <laughs> you need to break down your instructions to the computer down to a, a very fine detail. And I think that's where a lot of people that don't have that prior experience in, in programming, uh, they may be good at figuring out a possible solution, but they can't break it down into its components and, and the details, so basically they can't implement it. Uh, the programmer has got that advantage of knowing how to use fundamental programming structures and keywords does to do something specific and put all that together in a configuration that solves a problem. So, yeah, I think everybody should be a programmer, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Totally off topic. Yes, <laughs> it's not a problem at all. I'm great at this. I was wondering, did your proximity of to Russia uh, change the types of electronics that you were playing around with back in the day? Or, you know, was this not permeable? As in the Soviet Union. The, yeah, with the, mm. did the electronics not make it across? Yes, I remember back in... Um, 80s, uh, there they, they were restrictions uh, to 
export certain electronics to Russia, and that was technology related. And nowadays, I think there's also same same kind of things going on with the microwave um, area and things like that. But um, actually, I have saw I saw the uh, Russian equipment um, in my military uh, career when I was there. Also, it, it's not basically a career, but in Finland, you have to you have to go for the army for a certain time. It's mandatory. So we we saw some Russian we we saw some um, Russian equipment and they were quite sophisticated back in those days. So obviously they had uh, knowledge of technology back then, and I, I still think think they are really strong in 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 areas of um, electronics electronics and um, cyber warfare and all these things. It's it's really different domain. I was going to ask uh, how do the electronics differ. To what uh, in the philosophy of the design, perhaps yeah, the, or to what the, the architecture. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I would say they they were not so. Basically, the all the all the architecture was the same as in in the Western world, but the the really really the, the device itself some sometimes it could be a little uh, rough looking compared to commercial product in, in in Western world, but but it still work. It's it's really robust and. Really, really good design inside inside the uh, devices. Problems back then, I think they had uh, was a lack of computers, computer chips, and uh, proper proper components. Yeah, and the software, like from the little reading I've done on the topic, the software development was, um, uh, I suppose, more restricted because the computers had less memory. In some ways, they actually had to push a lot more through software out of the well, hardware that they had. That's why Tetris came out of Russia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. That's but I think uh, after 90s, when the Soviet Union collapses, then it really changed. And uh, I think there are really strong software developers in Russia mm. nowadays as well. Oh, yeah, now everything is different. Okay, sorry, I took us all off track. Uh, <laughs> Bring us uh, back on track. Let's let's try and come back on track. So um, you are now. Uh, I know that you are playing around with Arduinos and microcontrollers. It's one of your hobbies. Is that something that is relating to your work, or is it really a hobby of yours? It's really a hobby of mine because my work is. Uh, I'm responsible for from uh, three different areas. One of these is uh, sales of uh, broadcasting equipment and also the technical support for the broadcasting customers. And uh, the other one is uh, uh, nationwide sales for EMC uh, test equipment. So this microcontroller thing is uh, that's pure hobby hobby for me at the moment. So uh, when did you start with that? I think I started um, maybe two years back. I bought these Arduino platforms and uh, start started to play around with them and um, watch watch lots of videos from the internet. And I think it's really cool concept because you can really easily get uh, started with these things. You don't have to upload uh, different drivers to your computer and do a lot of work to to flash your program inside the controller. So it's really, really good platform to start and make things happen. And I have also tried to teach this uh, to my son, but he's not yet uh, interested from the <laughs> microcontrollers. Let's see in the future. It's a bit too raw. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, the Arduino and... So the Arduino is one of the 
suppose the both the outcomes and perhaps the causes of the maker movement uh, and perhaps one of the reasons of why the maker movement became so big and so quickly because I remember when I was in uh, was doing my engineering uh, at university we had microcontrollers that came basically as a chip <laughs> had to put all the circuitry around it or perhaps it came in a prototyping board that looks nothing like the Arduino, like super complicated stuff and pins everywhere and mm-hmm. you know you need to have appro- the, the appropriate precisely appropriate power supply and you need to connect it to a computer in a particular way and use some proprietary sophisticated software that you need to spend a whole semester learning how to upload your not your sketch but your firmware <laughs> into yep. so basically it was something that the university would use it's not something that a hobbyist would do back then i remember in the 90s now a hobbyist would play around with perhaps an fm transmitter kit that you'd buy from your electronics store and plug it together connect to your cassette tape to broadcast some music to your uh, around your neighborhood <laughs> pretty much but there was nothing as sophisticated and as simple as the Arduino um, in Finland how how much uh, technologies like the Arduino or the Raspberry Pi or say that let's focus on the Arduino used in schools I think they are starting to use these um Arduinos in schools. Uh, I'm not sure about elementary schools, but when I was at the university, Arduino was not in in the um, program back then. Then then we were using uh, the uh, other manufacturer microcontrollers. But I think it's slowly finding its way into the universities and schools. And I I saw some uh, final thesis um, from the different people, which which they and those were involved in Arduino. So it's really, really useful for many applications. And like you say, it's really, really easy to set up and test things and uh, make make basic um, I.O. things really fast happening. So that's, that's, that's one of the advantages of this, this platform for sure. And kids don't get bored just by trying to set it up. For days and days, and just get open up the box, plug it in, plug in an LED, and off you go. Mm-hmm. Links is so exciting. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so um, how about we do some rapid fire questions? <laughs> so what happens with rapid fire questions is that we ask you uh, a few very small questions, unlike all our other questions, which tend to be a bit longer. And you answer. Uh, if you want, you can answer quickly. Like you can even answer with a single word if, <laughs> if that's how you feel, or take a, bit, a little bit longer. Um, so, do you want to, get to start, Marcus? Sure. Who has been the most influential in shaping the way that you learn? And you're not allowed to say Peter. <laughs> oh, you can say Peter if you want. Yeah, I think there are so many people uh, during during my studies and career. These are students, fellow students, um, teachers, colleagues, uh, mentors. This, uh, all these people have had a really good um, practical tips what to look for and how to do it. And that that is the way I've been learning. To your teachers. Life. Yeah, to your teachers and colleagues, and, and from the fellow students also. I wonder if when you were a kid, was there somebody that influenced you in you know, becoming a technology geek, perhaps somebody on TV, you know, somebody you read about, 
if even a, a fictional character it doesn't have to be a real character like yes. Dr. Spock. <laughs> yes, exactly. The Spock was the one which I was I was watching Star Trek back then. Uh, I still do watch Star Trek. <laughs> so, so Spock was the one. Yeah, Spock was the one one of one person <laughs> to influence on this one and, and yeah, I could say that. Almost every engineer that I've asked, it's Spock. You know, it, it, it's not um it's not Picard or it's not um um, like one of the, I suppose, manager managers on the, the, on the yellow red shirts. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's always an engineer, yeah, or somebody like Spock. <laughs> awesome. Um, here's another one. In your daily work or work or hobby, is there an app, an application that you can't live without? Some that you use perhaps to keep notes. Uh, to communicate with others, to you know, learn from anything. So for from the apps, um, I would say for my for my work, uh, that's definitely an email. Uh, without without that, I can I can't do my my quotations. I'm I'm a kind of a boring guy for that one. For but for for the, I would say for for um, technical side, there is a li- lots of different applications which are re- related to signal generation, spectrum analysis, um, EMI test receivers, uh, working with these. Uh, they are all all device-related um, applications. So there are so many, and, and there is always uh, a certain application for certain problems. So I couldn't say for, there is uh, some specific app for me. So there are many of these apps which I use. So what is one of these engineering apps that you feel probably deserves more attention? Uh, an app that perhaps people should know about? C- commercial, I suppose. It doesn't <laughs> have to be commercial or it should be... Could be a, like a simulator. Do you play around with simulators in electronics or with signal simulators or things that people can use to learn? Um, I would say that... Um, we have an application notes in, in, in our company website, which you can use. Um, and in there, there is a program related for generating an arbitrary waveforms or, or things like these. Uh, there is no so, so special that it's always, it's always um, a device oriented application, like in spectrum analysis or signal generation, you need uh, a certain type of equipment. And then there is an company application which is written for generating some certain things or analyzing some signals so I would say the best thing is to go, go, go look for a, from our website for, for different application notes which are really good by the way because they have a, they've been building a, in, in, like in university way so, so there is always a background from the technology and then there's investigations on how can you do these measurements with our, our test measurement equipment and there's a lot of documentation then for all these yes. tool applications right so that you can train yourself yeah. to use them yeah and basically you can use use any any other vendor devices it's not mandatory to use ours but but it's written of course to our devices but but as a practical guide you can use these application notes what advice would you give to new engineers just starting out any tips or tricks that they should know well, what i see in 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 my field of business nowadays i see there are few 
major big business areas coming up. These are 5G mobile technology, IoT, cybersecurity, energy effective solutions, which means green technology, and healthcare. So if you are interested uh, from from the career of engineering, these might be things to look for in the future because I think there will be a lot of different projects and programs going on around these subjects. And um, everything is everything is wireless nowadays. So so bas- basically, you you I recommend you get some sort of a basic training from RF technology because that's helpful at the end. From your experience with the four mentors that you had back in your young days, what are those qualities of a mentor that you appreciate the most? Like if you were a mentor yourself, you'd like to have that those skills. I would say the most most important uh, skill is the is that you you have to be willing to teach the student even if he ask um, he is asking basic questions because a lot of uh, when i remember back my my studies uh, in 80s and 90s a lot of the people they get annoyed when you are asking same things over and over again so so i would say you have to be a persistent and uh, be willing to go with the terms of the student and set the pace for that one yeah be patient and, yes and take responsibility for your students learning right I've, I've heard that somebody else is saying ah yes it's, it's a very good skill actually uh, myself being a university lecturer for 15 years I've found that that's the most important skill is patience uh, adjust to the student instead of expecting the student to adjust to you very interesting um do you use a programming language? Yes, um, at the moment I've been studying this C programming language, and uh, it's, it's it's related to my um, Arduino hobbies. So that's that is what I'm studying, and I'm thinking about taking studies also C plus plus and C sharp maybe in the future. Yeah, C is coming back. Yeah, <laughs> thanks I to the Arduino. So. Yeah. <laughs> the engineer's programming language, yes. after all. Yeah. So I know that you do a lot of uh, training on your own accord. Um, uh, would you classify any of that as professional development from the strict um, sense of the word uh, training that applies directly to your work? Is that something that happens through your company or do they send you out to seminars? How does it work? Yes, uh, we have a, we have a in-house seminars and also seminars for the customers. And uh, then we have a really good uh, uh, training program going on on from the company side, and uh, there is a training organization who is uh, actually making it happen. And uh, it, I think it's uh, mandatory for for young sales or technical people to apply these trainings, so you can get the basic feeling about our equipment. So I think our system is quite good in that way, and these are normally happening in Germany. So yeah, obviously the. Um now, the training element must be very strong in your company since technology is changing so fast. You want your workforce to keep up with all the changes. Are there any, are there any publicly available courses that you'd recommend others do? I would say you can look from the, our company website or from the YouTube because we do also webinars and these are open basically for Everybody. So there's lots of different webinars from our experts from the headquarters. 
which is covering a lot of different areas like uh, LTE, 5G, signal generation, oscilloscopes and lots of different things. Can you give us, um, I suppose, the URL of your company's website so that we can go and uh, learn? We'll add it to the show notes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, it's uh, it's www.rody-schwartz.com. So that's the global address for, for the... And you could probably uh, direct it to your uh, country country website. All right, no problem. We'll, we'll add it to the show notes so that our listeners can look it up and I will connect them directly to the educational content mm-hmm. on the company's website. Um, okay, well, well, I think we are almost finished. Just a, a couple of last questions just to close and wrap it up. Um, would you have any parting thoughts for our listeners uh, as a learner, especially anything that you would advise our listeners to do or to don't or to look out for? I would say um, from my personal experience, uh, I was quite old when I graduated from the uh, university. I would say study while you are young. <laughs> uh, I graduated uh, as a age of 42 uh, and I went to the university while I was working full-time, so it's really, really rough to get all the schedules together. Uh, Besides that, I would say keep an open mind and study lots of different things in a wide scope because you never know where you end up working with. So every skill counts. Yeah, excellent. Thank you very much, Pasi. Thank you, Pasi. There was a really nice discussion and... um, I wish you all the best in your technology adventures and your learning adventures. I know you never stop learning and that's a great skill to have. And uh, we'll check with you again, say, in a while to see, especially I'm interested to know how your son is developing and uh, how his space exploration uh, <laughs> interests are going. Yeah. Yes, that's, that sounds good. Great. Thank you. Thank you, guys. That's all for this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to our email address, questions at stemiverse.com, and we'd be happy to answer them. Do you want us to interview someone in particular? Let us know. Visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode. And subscribe on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, Stemiverse. That is S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.